If you would please turn your Bibles to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. We're only going to look at one verse, 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll look at verse 3. Now this is uh, this first verse, this is uh, uh, after the introduction, this is the first verse of a paragraph really that we will look at more next week, but uh, just by way of introduction I want us to touch on this, uh, just this First, uh, verse 3 it says, Blessed be the God and the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, we thank You. Lord, we just are joyful today, just rejoicing because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord, for those things that um, are the result of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection in our life. It's not something that happened 2,000 years ago and had no consequence, but it has deep, meaningful consequences to our lives today. And Lord, as we look at this passage, may us may we uh, may we see these things. May it be reflected in us. This resurrection that happened a long time ago, may it be reflected in our lives today. Lord, I pray that as we look at your word, your word would be clear, that we would understand, that we would that you would just illuminate this word to us for understanding, and then Lord, help us to apply this. Help us help it to sink deeply into our minds. To affect the way we, we think, and the way we see life, and the way we see ourselves, our own identity of who we are as people of yours. Lord, we, we're just so thankful today. Thank you so much for the privilege of being together and worshiping together and celebrating this resurrection day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Peter starts his letter here uh, singing praises to the Lord. And uh, he is praising the Lord specifically for our salvation. Our salvation. And that salvation, you see at the end of the, the verse, is based upon, it's rooted and grounded in to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our salvation is connected, well connected, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the message that we preach, isn't it? And, and just in, in Paul's day... When Paul would preach, he would speak. As soon as he would mention the resurrection, oh, they would just turn him off. They would put him in the category of a, of a fairy tale. Today they do the same thing. They put us in the category of the Easter bunny. And you believe in Santa Claus. And you believe in fairy tales. You believe in unicorns. And they just kind of put you as, oh, you're just a little off-center. Just a little crazy. You believe in that kind of stuff. I mean, science has proven, hasn't it, that, that dead people stay dead, is what they said. There's no proof of a resurrection. There's no proof. There's no evidence. Well, I think there's, I think there's plenty of proof. And I think we, we could see some of that in, in our sermon today. But they would, they would go on. And, now, the scholars, though, the secular scholars, even those who would not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they would admit that Christ did exist. There's enough evidence for that. And that he actually died on the cross. But, but boy, when you talk about a resurrection, 
That's just, it's not. And I think they would say, well, no, no, the conspiracy theory, they would say it. So they, you know, they would say that the disciples, well, they came along by night and stole the body away. And they, they wanted to kind of save face because this was their savior and their savior is now dead and it's embarrassing to them. So they came and stole the body away. So it would appear that Jesus died or that he rose again. That's kind of unlikely, isn't it? I mean, they're asking us to believe that these scared fishermen came in and overpowered this Roman guard who were, who were set there in front of the grave intentionally to protect the body, to make sure nobody takes that body. And those Roman guards, I mean, they were, they were trained to do that very kind of thing. And they're asking us to believe that. We just think, no, that's, that's not really... That doesn't fit the narrative. It doesn't fit the story at all. And then they would say, well, maybe they were just hallucinating. You know, because they were under a lot of stress. This was their Savior, and their Savior is now dead. And emotionally, they were uh, distraught, and uh, they're disillusioned. And, and so they, they were just hallucinating. They saw this vision of Christ. This vision of Christ. And, but what we see in Scripture, the scriptural account, there, there was 500 people that saw Christ. And when these disciples saw Christ, it wasn't some kind of vision off on the, on the distance. No, he said, come. And, and he sat down and ate a meal with them. And he said, touch my side. They're very physical. And they, they obviously saw that. That was not, it's not the way hallucinations work, is it? But in spite of the all four Gospels um, uh, having a record of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, people still doubt. They still want evidence outside of Scripture, you know. Outside of Scripture. Scientific evidence of some kind. But let me give you some, some evidence, just, just real quick. Um, first of all, there's the problem of the, the body. Where is the body? It was protected by those Roman soldiers. It was taken off the cross first and put into a tomb but the body is gone. There is a missing body there. And that's evidence in and of itself. And the soldier's testimony of that is evidence. And there is women that verified, yeah, it was gone. Now, why is that significant? Because their testimony would not hold up in court. And these, these women would have nothing to gain to, in, in lying about this thing. And that's evidence. I think it's pretty solid evidence. But really, there's some evidence within the enemies of Christ. I mean, they would have, if they could have, they would have produced a body. If, they was, if there was any doubt about that, they would have, if at all possible, proven that Jesus did not raise from the dead. And they would have left no stone unturned. But there was there's no evidence to that. And in fact, all the evidence pointed that he was not there. They had no story. And so they had to concoct a lie. It was the passage that was read for us earlier. Let me give you some other evidence. Other proof. Look at these disciples. These disciples were so fearful. You remember when they come to get Christ. Um, you know, Peter kind of thought he had some courage. But boy, he was the one that he denied Christ uh, three times. But what does the Bible say? It says they scattered. They went all their different ways. Why? Because they knew they were next. I mean, if they killed Christ, they're going to be coming after us. What did they do? You next find them. Uh, in, in, a, in a closed room with the doors locked. And that's exactly what it was. They were fearful. I mean, they were next. 
And yet, somehow, this fear gave way to these men turning the world upside down for Christ. Somehow, and, and it points back to the resurrection. They saw the body of Christ. They saw Him. They saw Him. They saw the resurrected Christ. And that empowered them. And that emboldened them. And they preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. And many of them died. Many of them were persecuted and, and, and killed for the fact. They would not recount this message that was so sunk deep into their heart. They knew the truth. Folks, that's evidence. That's evidence. That changed life. That boldness. That yes, this is something that we know to be true. They did not recant even under pressure. What about Paul? I mean, Paul was another evidence. I mean, he, he hated the church. He hated Christ and all that Christ stood for. He was wanting to wipe the church out. And then he, and he, uh, he began to persecute the church. And, and all of a sudden, Paul, Paul became a believer. How does that happen? He saw the resurrected Christ. You could say the same thing about James, the brother of Jesus. I mean, he should know better, right? Before the resurrection, unbeliever, after the resurrection, we see him a powerhouse in the church, in the early church. And he sounds like he even gave his life for that fact. Now, people are not going to just do that unless they know that it is true. And you have that boldness and you have those changed lives. And that gives evidence to a resurrection that points to, yes, this is real, this is true. They were eyewitnesses to this thing. The resurrection has not been disproven. But the reality of it is that the resurrection is a supernatural event. It cannot be proven or disproven by natural recourse, right? Natural science. Because it's just natural. This is supernatural stuff. This is God doing this. It's supernatural, the resurrection. So we're looking for not... Physical evidence, we're looking for spiritual evidence anyway, right? That's exactly right. Now I want you to see that in this passage right here. Because Peter starts out, he starts out, bless the God and Father. It's not blessed be, some translations, my translation has that. But he's actually calling us into praise to God with him. Bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's entering into that praise, this doxology to the Lord. Let's look at God and we're going to praise God for our salvation. In fact, here's the, it's kind of like a pyramid. And this is the way I want you to, to picture it here. You have a pyramid. And at the very top, you have praise to the Lord. Blessed be God. Why? Because, look at verse, in the middle of the verse, because of His great mercy. So next level on the pyramid, great mercy. Well, what did that do? Well, that caused us to be born again. It's the next level in the pyramid. Well, what did that do? Well, that, gave, that caused us to be born again to a living hope. And all of it, if you notice, was based upon the resurrection. It's based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
It's all based upon the resurrection. And the pyramid, the top of this pyramid is praising to God. Why? Because of the resurrection. I believe today that we have a disconnect. There's some, some detachment of this resurrection for us today. I mean, we celebrate it, but it was something that happened 2,000 years ago without ramification for today. Boy, in Peter's mind, it was relevant. It was fresh. His whole life was built upon this resurrection. And it gave rise, gave rise to praise. It gave rise to rejoicing. It gave rise to, to joy in his heart. To honoring God. To blessing God. To worshiping God. To loving God with all of his heart. Obeying God and listening to God's word. Exalting God's word. And, and it energized Peter. It brought all kinds of emotions I'm sure, up. And it gave him purpose and significance to life. I like what Jonathan Edwards said. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most joyful event that ever came to pass. Wow. The most joyful event that ever came to pass. Yeah, the most joyful event. And I believe that it's not something that happened 2,000 years ago. And we just kind of remember it. Oh, we celebrate it today. This is the Easter. This is what we do. Kind of like Christmas. That kind of thing. No, this is ramifications today. There is no detachment. There's a direct correlation of our joy today and in our spiritual life today to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Peter lays that out for us. And I want us to see that today. Here's, here's a, let me summarize it in a paragraph. Through the means of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has caused His people to be born again resulting in great praise to Him. And the question I want us to see, and it's going to be a little bit different than what you see on your, uh, your outline there. I, I changed it up, but what's on the screen is accurate. The question is, why praise God for the, result, or for the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Some may say, well, good for Him. He raised 2,000 years ago. I mean, what does that have to do with me? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it has everything to do with you. And there's three elements that Peter points out here. Three elements of our salvation that are reflected in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's look at them just quickly. Number one, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was the result of God's great mercy. Now, trace it all back. And, and way back before the foundation of the world, before He created anything, He had mercy on us. Look what He says. Blessed be the God. That's where it started. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy, His attribute, He is a merciful God. That is part of His character. His nature is merciful. He is a merciful God. He wants that displayed to everyone. Now, mercy is a little bit different from, from grace. They're, they're parallel. Mercy and grace are, are kind of parallel. But mercy is based upon a person's circumstances, based upon the person's condition. And it's essentially having pity on someone. Pity on their condition. Pity on their circumstances. And God Himself was moved. His arm was moved Out of pity for our condition. We were in misery. We were helpless and hopeless. Our condition moved God to 
take action. To, to do something. He took pity upon us. His mercy was enacted. Here's what, I like MacArthur's little quote here. He says, grace takes a person from guilt to acquittal. It's more of a legal term. Grace takes a person from guilt to acquittal. It's something that you would stand before the court. Okay, you're not guilty anymore. You're acquitted of this sin. But look at mercy. Look at mercy. It's so much more personable. But mercy takes the sinner from misery to glory. That's right. That's right. God's mercy was enacted for us. Now, I want us to see this. I want to see this illustrated in Matthew chapter 9. Turn over there quickly. Matthew chapter 9. Just, I want you to see the mercy of Christ. And I want you to see it applied to us today. Matthew chapter 9, in verse 27. Just one verse and we'll, we'll actually pull it together here. 27, chapter 9, verse 27. As Jesus went on from there. Now, He had done some things. We'll look at that in a second. As he went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us. And uh, they caught up with him finally. And, and Now, they were blind. And he had pity on them. He had mercy on them. He says, Do you believe, verse, uh, verse 28, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said, Yes, Lord, yes. Verse 30, and their eyes were open. He opened their eyes. Why? Because they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us. They recognized their misery, their blindness. Their blindness. And God and Christ enacted. He, he, saw that blind, he saw that blindness. He saw and had pity on them. Now the same thing happened. How did they know to call out for, for mercy? Look at verse 18. Because here's what happened. When he was saying these things, he was teaching uh, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, my daughter has just died. I said, my daughter died. Can you come and lay hands on him and she will live? Now, look at the position that she is in. She is dead. He is in misery. My daughter is dead. But I know Jesus, Jesus can heal her. So Jesus takes off. He's good. Okay, yeah, I'll go with you. While he's going, here's another lady. And there was, of course, crowded. And this lady, she kind of is able to, to get up close and just, just touches him. And she, was, she had a problem too. She had been hemorrhaging. She had been bleeding for about 12 years. That's a long time. She was in misery. In misery. She touched the hem of his garment and she was healed. And that stopped everything. Everybody looked. and It was amazing. And then Jesus goes to the official's house. He goes in and he brings this dead girl back to life. So these two blind men, they understand these things. They are piecing two and two together. And they're saying, hey, if he had mercy on them, maybe he'll have mercy on us. Do you see? And, and Jesus was enacted by their mercy. Now Jesus could have done a, a lot of tricks. And I was just thinking about this. This would have been kind of cool. If Jesus would have just come down and just did, hey, you know, uh, pull rabbit out of a hat and did some card tricks and did some things to make people ooh and ah, but he didn't. All of the miracles that Jesus did were a result of his mercy. He wants his mercy to be displayed on people. He didn't just do tricks. 
to show his power. He could have, but he wants to show his mercy. He wants to show his mercy. We need mercy today. We need mercy. Let me take you to one more passage. First Timothy. First Timothy, and then we'll go back to the first Peter passage. But first Timothy, here's the way Paul applies this. I just want us to think about this. First Timothy chapter one and verse thirteen says this even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor. Now remember Paul. He was persecuting the church. He was blaspheming God. He didn't even know it. And he was in that kind of state. A persecutor and a violent aggressor coming against the church, coming against Christ. Yet I was shown what? Mercy. God's mercy was directed toward Paul. Why? Because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. I didn't know. I didn't realize. And I'm so thankful for His mercy that was enacted to us. Now turn back to the First Peter passage. You get the idea of mercy. You get, you get an understanding of that. First Peter, back to that passage. But look at chapter 2 and verse 10. And you know this passage because we've read it almost every week now. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Remember that verse? It says, you had not received mercy, but now have received mercy. God's mercy was directed toward you. You who believe in Him, His mercy was directed toward you. He took pity on you. He had mercy upon you. I like what Alistair Begg, he says this, He says, our sin must be absolutely horrendous if it took the death of God's only Son to fix it. We were steeped in sin. And God, God in His great mercy, Peter says, His great mercy, He directed that mercy toward you, toward me, toward those who believe to the point... That Peter or that Paul says, um, if we are without, if, if Christ did not raise from the dead, he says we are of all men most to be pitied. We would remain in that pitied state, that miserable state. And here's the deal: just like those two blind men, has there been a time in your life when you recognize your pitiful state and you cried out, "Lord, Lord, give mercy." Lord, look at me. Look at me in my pitiful state. Have you done that? That's just the first step of salvation, isn't it? It's the first step of salvation. And in Christ, according to His great mercy, God, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has enacted God's mercy. Or it was based upon God's mercy. Number two, just quickly. The resurrection brings about new life for those who are united with Christ. Back in verse 3, it says, His great mercy has caused us to be born again. Boy, that is so significant. That is so important. Jesus said, the greatest need that you have, Nicodemus. John chapter 3, remember? Nicodemus, come to him by night. Before Nicodemus said anything, he said, uh, he says, Nicodemus, I can tell you right now, you need to be born again. 
Born again. That's man's greatest need is to be born again. Not just changed a little bit or tweaked or just kind of rearranged. No, man must be born again. Must be born again. You say, what does that look like? How does that happen? And uh, just, just think about this for a little bit. In Second Corinthians chapter 5, you, you know this passage as well. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. He is a new creature. So we have to be in Christ. In Romans chapter 6, this is, how, this is how it plays out. This is how it works. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. Now, he's not talking about physical baptism, physical water. That's just a symbol of what has happened spiritually inside of us. He's talking about a rebirth spiritually. And he's talking, here he's talking about a baptism. Baptism into his death. And you can see the imagery there. So that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so we too walk in newness of life. Verse 5, For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. You see, if we're united with Christ, if we have joined with Him and died to sin, spiritual baptism, and we walk with Him in newness of life, and we are united with Him, then certainly we're going to be with Him in the resurrection. That union with Christ, that's what we need. And that's what causes us to be new creatures, as he said in 2 Corinthians. New creatures. We are in a state of misery and sinful slavishness to to sin, spiritual death, satanic blindness. And he causes us to be born again. You say, how does that work? Go back to First Peter if you haven't if you haven't left there. Just First Peter chapter one verse twenty three. This is so good. Follow this here. Chapter one verse twenty three says this: For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring Word of God. So how did how did we how do we become born again? Well, it's through the Word of God. And that Word is alive. That Word is living. It's not something that's perishable. And he, he points out to the Old Testament, he points a verse, for all flesh is like grass. Our flesh, this is just this body. We're like grass. All its glory like flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. But the Word of God endures Word of the Lord endures forever. Listen, our bodies, our flesh, we're going to be like grass. We're going to be cut down. We're going to die. But the Word of God never dies. Now listen, when we receive that Word, and and look at the end of verse 25, and this is the Word which which was preached to you. So imagine now, Paul comes in, he's got the Word of God, this living Word, and he preaches it. He lets it go out. And it, it resonates in the hearts of some people. And they, and they react to that. They respond to that. And they, they blossom, they bloom. The Holy Spirit takes that Word and ignites that heart and causes that heart to be born again to a living hope. Living hope. This is a living Word. This word that does not die. 
living hope. Folks, that's the picture. That's the picture. Turn over to James chapter, just a few pages to the left. James chapter 1 and verse 18 says this. This is the same kind of picture. In the exercise of His will, that's God's will. So He's exercising His will, what He wants to do. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth. Now that's the imagery of being born again. He brought us forth, how? By the word of truth. By the word of truth. That's a wonderful picture. It was God's word. We we preach the message. Paul preached the message. People respond. You go out today, you go out this week, and you preach this message, this word, this resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You preach that, and some people, it's going to uh, ignite a flame in their heart of life, spiritual life. And that's exactly what Paul says, isn't it? He said that God made us alive in Ephesians chapter 2. You know that passage. We've been reading that a lot lately. He made us alive. We are spiritually born again. Man's greatest need was accomplished in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can, he has, through His mercy, caused us to be born again to a living hope. And that's salvation, folks. Listen, we need to change the way we think about salvation. It is not joining in a church. It's not just some doctrinal statement that we, yeah, okay, I'll, I agree to that. Oh, it's so much deeper, so much richer than that. It is a changed life, and it is all of God. God is the one who birthed us. Now, physical birth, I mean, I didn't help my mom give me birth. I didn't, like, pop my head out and say, Hey, Mom, I'll help you out the rest of the way. I've got this. Just take your time. Push myself out. No, that's ludicrous. And the same thing does not happen in spiritual birth. We had nothing. This is God has caused us to be born again. It's His will. It's His doing. He's the one that has enacted this. And it's based upon His mercy. And it's based upon the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and His resurrection. And it's through His Word. This living, abiding, precious word that was preached to us and we simply responded to it. That's a wonderful thought. Those are wonderful thoughts. Say, how do you know if you're born again? How do you know that? Well, Paul said, he's moved you from death into life. Okay, so there should be some spiritual life, right? Peter said, you're moved from darkness to light. There's some understanding now about spiritual things, but how do these, you know, how do we know? How do we know? Romans chapter 6, Paul gives us just a little glimpse of this. There's other books that address this more fully, but this just sums it up real well. Romans chapter 6 and verse 17 says this, But thanks be to God that though we were slaves to sin, we were ungodly, Slaves doing doing sinning, just sinning all we wanted. It's slave to sin, lawless selfishness, enslaved to sin. You became obedient from the heart. 
This just wasn't some external law that they put on you. No, you become obedient to God from the heart. There was a heart change. There was something ignited within you that, Lord, I want to obey. I don't want to be enslaved to sin anymore. I don't like my life. I want to change. And there's this obedience. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, I'm obedient. I'm obedient from the heart. I want this. I want to obey. So I'm obedient from the heart. That form to what? To that form of teaching to which you were committed to the same Word. To the same living, abiding Word. We're committed to it all of a sudden. And this is, this is how you know. There's a, there's a love for God. There's a love for God's Word. There's a commitment there. There's a desire to obey God. Where before, just selfishness. Before, there was just godlessness. There was lawlessness. And all of a sudden, I'm repenting over my sin. All of, my, all of a sudden, I'm trusting God and I'm obeying God and I love God. Folks, that's the picture of salvation that needs to be planted in our minds. God's, God directed His mercy toward us and caused us to be born again. Born again. Look at... The second thing, go back to First Peter, First Peter, chapter one, verse three. The resurrection brings about a living hope, a living hope, a living hope. He says that great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. This is a hope that doesn't die. Now, the world doesn't have this kind of hope. The world really has hopelessness. In fact, it was described that way in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. You were in a state of hopelessness, Paul says, and you were without God. And Job said that way, way, way back before the Gospels were ever written. Job, Job said that hope of the godless will perish. There is really no such thing. There is no such hope. But look down to verse 21 in First Peter. Verse 21, this whole passage would be good to read, but we'll just read this last verse. Verse 21 in this section. Who through Him are believers in God. This is through Christ, believers in God. Who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory. So that your faith and hope are in God. That's who we trust in. And that's who we believe in now. That's who we put our faith in. Now listen, folks. This is not some distant thing. This is something every day. We put our faith in God. What are we looking for? What are we hoping for? Well, in Romans we see we're looking for God's glory. We're looking for righteousness. But just staying in First Peter. Actually, turn over to Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 13. says this. This is so good. But according to His promise... We trust God. We have our hope in God and according to His promise. We are looking for a new heaven and a new earth. Why? In which righteousness dwells. Why? Because we have that desire for righteousness. We have that, that yearning to be in this, in this heaven, new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells, where righteousness reigns. That's us. Right now we're fish out of water. Our hope is this. Our hope is in God. Someday everything is going to be right again. 
and it'll be good. You say, well, how significant is this hope? Why is this hope so important? Turn over just a few pages, really, over to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. Let me show you this. This is so important. Just hang with me just a little bit. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 says this. This hope. Now, this is the undying hope. This is a living hope. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast. This hope doesn't go anywhere. This is a living hope. This is, this is something that's there every day. It's a living hope and it's sure and it's steadfast and it's the anchor of our soul. You say, what does that mean? Well, it, it caused Paul to say, you know what? It's better for me to die. I'm looking forward to this day. Just let me die. But I will live for Christ right here. That's what he said in Galatians. The same thing in, in Ephesians. For me to live is Christ, he says. But to die is gain. Listen, that's hope. That's the hope that we have. That's the, it's the, the anchor for our soul. It's the anchor for our soul. And it's what caused... Peter to praise. It caused Peter to, to praise God for this salvation, this mercy, this, this being born again, this living hope. It caused praise and joy in Peter's life. John Calvin said this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important article of our faith. And without it, the hope of eternal life is extinguished. Now listen, this isn't some hope of 2,000 years ago. This isn't some distant hope. This is a living hope. Something that Christians do every day. We put our hope back in God. It's a constant thing. It's not just a doctrinal statement that we sign. Yes, I believe in the resurrection. No, this is an ongoing daily hope. We wake up every day and we put on this hope for God, I'm looking forward to this today, God. Maybe today we will come, uh, or you will come. We will see your glory. We will enjoy your righteousness. It's every day. It's not just a doctrinal statement. And this living hope, folks, energizes us. It ignites our heart. It's a living. It's something that does not die. It just keeps on going. And we have much to praise God for because of it. And through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we, we uh, have been shown mercy. And He's caused us to be born again. And He's giving us this hope that will not die, this living hope. You say, well, how do we apply this? What do we, what do, we do with this message? This praise to God that is based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me just kind of pull it together. We celebrate a lot of things in the United States of America. We celebrate the 4th of July. We celebrate President's Day. We celebrate Halloween, whatever that celebration is. We celebrate a lot. But it's usually just remembering something that happened in the past. And let me just say, the resurrection is not something that just happened in the past that has no consequences to today. It brought great joy to Peter's heart and Peter's life. 
Listen, the world needs to see the evidence of a resurrected life. The world needs to see evidence, don't they? That it's just Jesus is still alive. I mean, He is a living and He is, he is in, in these new believers. He's, in, he's changed their life. And that gives, that gives so much evidence. It's not some kind of distant, uh, detached thing that we celebrate No, the world needs to see it. That means we need to live it. We need to live out this hope. We need to live out this hope that we've been given. Listen, if the world sees Christians that are moping around, that have no significance to life, that have no real purpose to life, that that just celebrate things just because they're celebrating them, something that happened 2,000 years ago, it's just detached. No, the world needs to see that that event 2,000 years ago has changed my life. It's caused me to be born again to a living hope, a hope that does not die. It's so relevant today. But this is a rich doctrine. This is a rich theology that needs to be brought down to made practical. And I think Peter did it in that one verse. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are undeserving of Your great mercy. Father, we are like those blind men that just cry out, Lord, give me mercy. Be merciful to us, Son of David. Have mercy on us. We are in this pitiful, sinful, slavish state. There's nothing we can do, Lord, and we cry out for mercy. We cry out for grace. We are helpless and hopeless. And Lord, we find that when we cry out for mercy, You are so gracious. You You give mercy. And You give grace. You you cause us to be born again to a living hope. You give an abundance of mercy and grace to us. And Lord, yet we live lives as though... We have no hope. We live lives as as though we're just obeying some some doctrinal statement that's that's written down somewhere. As though it has no effect on our real daily life. Father, may we go out here praising You, glorifying You because of what You did 2,000 years ago that has affected my life today. Every day I have this new, this living hope. Lord, help me never to see this doctrine, this this fact of the resurrection as something that's distant, something that's detached from my life. Lord, I I just pray for that. And Lord, if there's someone here today that, that doesn't have that mercy, may they cry out, may they recognize their spiritual bankrupt state and cry out for mercy today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask you to stand. When you when you think of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I want you to think about this living hope. <laughs> this this new birth that we have as a result. I want you to think like that. That's our salvation. It's alive and it's and it's well. 
If we can help you with any of these things, we'd love to be able to do so. I'm here throughout the week, and you can talk with any of the elders, uh, or I'll be in the back there. You can talk with me. We need to get these things settled. If you have not cried out for God's mercy, if you have not recognized your spiritual state, I beg of you today to consider these things. These are serious things. Serious things. But for the believer, we have much to rejoice about, don't we? God's mercy. Being born again, we have a living hope on a daily basis. We have something to live for, an abundant life. Father, thank you for your grace. You're so kind that you did not leave us in our miserable state. You showed your mercy to us and to all those who believe. I pray that we remember that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.